The talk tonight is about lighting ourselves up from the inside. (laughs) 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 It seems appropriate uh, with patience and equanimity. Patience is uh, the mother of the paramis, and equanimity is the father of the paramis. So uh, that um, both of those energies, the it's not like the Buddha means the combination of all the energies rather than the absence of these energies of patience, equanimity, light, dark, mother, father, feminine, masculine. On this evening, you know, long ago I used to give a talk on the armies of Mara just to kind of talk about the darkness, but I thought it would be fun to talk about um, the light inside tonight. And just to acknowledge, for those of you who don't know what day this is, it's Halloween. (laughs) And (laughs) I wanted to just touch base on that um, (laughs) so that one gets a context for these pumpkins. The origin of this, as far as I can plummet or fathom, is uh, way back when we were so much more guided by starlight. Um, At this time of the year, uh, the Pleiades, the constellation Pleiades, would be um, at its midnight culmination on all hallowed eve, and uh, Pleiades is considered the mother of the universe. You know, so just like on the summer solstice, the the sun is considered at its peak and is celebrated. Um, The mother of the universe is considered at her peak at this point in time, and that's why this is celebrated. Um, But in actual fact, since that long ago, the midnight culmination is actually more around November 22nd. It could be a little bit later. Um, but that's that's its one of its origins. And how it's um, started to shift culturally is it's called All Hallowed Eve. You know, that's the, just to keep in mind that there's, this is very sacred, um, considered a very sacred time. And the meaning of that is that um, there's this chance for us for this veil between the multi-dimensional realities. To s- it's very thin, um, considered thin on, a, on this night, and that that's very sacred and holy. And then, of course, tomorrow, depending again on um, your connection with all of this, but in most traditions, um, it would be shifting into All Saints Day or, you know, the Day of the Dead, or just, just to keep in mind in the Americas, this is a North and South America, a very, very sacred, holy time. It's the beginning of celebrating, again, the Mother of the Universe, and that tends to go on through December. There is a great um, poet shaman, maybe she's considered the most powerful ever in South America. Her name um, was Maria Sabina. And she said about um, 
God that she considered God all of the saints' minds together. And, and if you think of how beautiful that is, that, um, that really, you know, that th- in this tradition, third stage of enlightenment is considered saint, a saint, and that that, that that purity where there's no more identification with aversion and attachment, that consciousness she considers as a shared consciousness uh, of God with all saints, so that it's not like this separate entity, but something we drop into when there's no aversion or attachment present. So that's, that's deeply celebrated at this time, shifting from this thin veil in the world's tonight to um, dropping into that shared consciousness. You know, the Sri Nazargadatta, the um, great um, saint from India said, um, all consciousness is really sharing and that all realization is really understanding that all consciousness is sharing. You know, and also just in terms of nature, you know, we get a sense that we're moving from more light to more darkness, and how, how do we really relate to darkness? Um, and that, that's a really interesting investigation when one doesn't live with electricity. Um, the years, I spent eight years living without electricity, and it, it's just, um, when you feel winter and the darkness coming, it's quite profound. And so our relationship to light and dark is, is very much close to the unconditioned. It's kind of what's left before that, that, that range of light and dark. One of my um, very favorite quotations was um, reading a book about um, the astronauts' experiences when they go into outer space. And most of us know that they were so, so trained scientifically. I mean, these beings were just pushed so hard in their training, you know, to just do all these experiments in outer space and just, just, just no preparation, you know, for actually, like, being in outer space. You know, I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's like the kind of profundity of what that would be like in terms of actual experience did not even enter any trainer's minds. You know, which is like, you know, from sitting here perspective, that's pretty awesome, yeah? That it wouldn't even be considered something that you would even think they'd have to experience, like experience outer space, like spiritually, you know? So, but but this book was filled with um, paragraphs of what it was actually like, you know, when they actually stopped and just got where they were. And there were these two astronauts that, that it was the first time they left, you know, with that like umbilical cord to the oxygen. And, you know, they were floating in this just total darkness. And they, they were just speechless. Neither, n- neither of them, you know, they can talk to each other. And, uh, you know, of course, the beings back on Earth can hear them that are hooked in. And they were just, just that mystery, you know, that ineffable mystery of how things are. You know, it was just hit them so deeply. And they were just speechless. And then one of them j- said, um, boy, 
That's what I call dark. <laughs> so great, you know. <laughs> what else can you say? You know, <laughs> it's really dark. And then, how do we relate to that? Usually, we're really afraid. You know, it's just like it's overwhelming. You know, when we move into our relationship to just light and dark. You know, so this, the whole sense of spiritual awakening is, you know, enlightenment is is just like the look of these pumpkins. It's really this gradual bringing the light inside and lighting up the dark and light, you know, the, the range of joy and sorrow and all the things that we resist. You know, we're gradually bringing a candle of awareness into rather than a resistance. And speaking of kind of shifts in nature or um, seasons, um, there's a shift happening in this retreat. And it's sometimes it's helpful just to acknowledge it. One can feel the energy of the people here for six weeks starting to just feel like, oh, <laughs> you know, we all know, yeah? It's not being talked about, but we all know on Friday there'll be a big shift. There'll be you know, the six-weekers leave. And on the same day, all, this n- all these new people come in. So I just wanted to acknowledge that most people in interviews with me have already talked about the sadness of that. You know, that just the, that even though we don't know each other, you know, we might not know anybody's stories, you know, just going through this this process together, day after day, it's like we're close, like families close. And even though we might not have ever spoken to somebody, you know, that when we see them leave, or we anticipate that, and we don't, mostly no one will even know who's leaving, right? Oh, you can tell by P1 in three months if you're really, you know, bored. (laughs) You want to, you want to try to look at the interview list and check it out. You know, who's in front of you and who's behind you. You can probably figure it out. But really, it's just kind of like no one says anything. Um, But there is a way that I remember the first time I went through that, and I just wasn't expecting it. And I walked down the hallway in the annex, and somebody had a suitcase outside their door. And it was just like, they left a little early. And I just, like, it hit me so hard. I went into my room, and I just started crying. And I kept thinking, I don't even know this person. (laughs) Like, I don't even know their name. You know, and how is that, that one can feel that deeply? You know, it's because we're so connected. And we've woven together, um, in this time together, a beautiful way of life. So it's important to acknowledge that we will feel that at times, you know, and there'll be that mix of um, range, which which I'll probably talk more about Friday morning, but just that mix of, um, you know, those who are leaving will, will want to stay and will want to leave. You know, there's that ambivalence, and those who stay will want to leave <laughs> and will want to stay. I mean, we just to acknowledge that us humans are ambivalent, you know, and we really are out for the best deal. You know, (laughs) 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 
my first um, trip into Burma, I hadn't practiced in, in Asia, and Steve Smith had been there for many years um, and had started to, was invited by a Saida Ulakana up in Upper Burma to teach um, a retreat of what we call the fusion retreat, but a retreat for um, Westerners to come into a monastery, which is, it's amazing. Uh, and he was willing to teach with a Western male teacher, which was very unusual. They, that isn't, doesn't happen in Burma. And for three years that retreat happened, and it was great. And then um, Steve had visited Aung San Suu Kyi one too many times. I think he must have signed in one too many times, and he was refused a visa by the um, military government. Um, and so we thought we weren't really clear how strict that was going to be or how um, much to believe how long it w this, this uh, loss of visa was going to happen. But it happened to be the year that um, his mother was coming and his daughter and um, this, this young man that had lived with us since he was 15, and um, he couldn't go. But we weren't sure, again, we weren't sure if that when he went to Thailand if he could get in. So I decided to go um, and bring his mom and my stepdaughter and Jake. And, um, but we were all thinking he'd probably get the visa. We really thought it was just this little warning, like a little slap on the wrist. Uh, and then he didn't get his visa. We all went in. But again, we were still thinking he might get it if he went you know, just to another little office to apply. And, um, and there's a, there was a phone at the monastery only in Sayadaw Ulakana's um, bedroom. And I had never seen Sayadaw Upandita do a lot of open displays of emotion in my years with him. And I used to, to go make a phone call to find out what was going on with Steve. I had to go into Ulakana, Sayadaw Ulakana's bedroom and talk on the phone, and Sayadaw would always stay there. You know, like, he, he never thought, like, there was such a thing as a private phone call, <laughs> you know? So I was, like, waiting to find out about this visa. And we, you know, also just to keep in mind, Burma is one of Steve's most dear spiritual homes. And just to be kept out just felt so painful. And it was painful for everyone at the monastery. Everybody knew him well. They, the village knew him well because he started a project for building a school and the hospital. So it was a huge thing that he wasn't being allowed in. And also the people knew that this meant the government was going to just come down harder and harder. So it was very, uh, there was a lot of emotion around this. Um, and then I showed up to teach this retreat. And he, Saito Alakana was willing to teach with a Western male lay teacher, but he, I don't think he had any thoughts about teaching with a Western <laughs> woman lay teacher. I mean, this was a huge, radical change. So I went up to him, and, I, and I'd never met him. And I was like, you don't have to do this. I'm happy not to do this. It's fine. I sort of didn't want to really break new ground. You know, I was sort of, let's just do this without me. And he was like, no, 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 it's fine. He was so uh, gracious very gracious. Uh, of course, this didn't mean that the rest of the people around there wanted me there, right? It was like he did, but it was very, very radical. And I respect him deeply for, for making this um, change in how things have been done. Um, 
So, okay, so we're building up to this moment where I was uh, waiting for a phone call from Steve, and there was a lot of emotion around it. And I started to think, oh, you know, Sayadaw's going to be there, and I'll probably cry, and it's going to look like I'm not very awake. You know, there was all this thought of fear of judgment, right? And, you know, I got the phone call, and I started crying, and Sayadaw was looking at me, and I was crying, and I had the phone. And then I just was feeling like, oh, I wonder what he thinks of this. So I got off the phone, and he looked at me, and he said, it's so sad. And he, little tears started to come down his, his cheek. And then he said, it's so sad. And he was crying, you know, and it's like I was crying, and it was like totally okay. It's like, of course, it's sad. It's okay. You know, it's like it's just sadness will appear, live itself out, and disappear. You know, and there was nothing big deal, no extra with it. It was just, yeah, that's sad. It's okay. You know, so when we get, you know, there'll be times during this week where we'll feel this transition, and there'll be a range, you know, of excitement and um, sadness, because that's what happens with the, the with change, and we have fear of change, but that range of joy and sorrow. So see if you can just, of course, of course, we're in transition, and it's okay. It's okay to have the range of emotion with it. And in a way that, like, there's so much about understanding, for example, the life cycle of a breath. You know, it's just like to remember that each breath has a life cycle. It takes birth. It lives, it dies. You know, there's so much that we can learn from that. But if that might not be our doorway, it could be with a sound or a thought. You know, it just it, it's just that ability to value the fleetingness of life. And as we start to value the fleetingness, we're actually to be we're actually able to be here more fully in the present moment. And that's, that's such an important part of understanding beginning, middle, and endings. And ultimately, some sadnesses can be inexplicable. And I wanted to um, read a poem by Saigyo, the great Japanese monk poet from the 1100s. All so vague... In autumn, the reasons why all fall away, and there's just this inexplicable sadness. You know, autumn. Autumn is such a powerful, poignant time of year. And yet, you don't have to have any words with it. You can just, I mean, these beautiful oak leaves, that the last round of leaves that start to go down, you know, we can have that um, mixture of seeing the beauty, but also that inexplicable sadness, and that that's just part of the suchness of things and part of the life cycle. One of the ways that it can be really helpful to hold um, how things are in terms of time or timelessness is to really reflect on the times that you've actually seen a movie. Um, It could be just 
long ago where you saw a screen with a, a home vid, you know, movie projector, but to remember that if, that if you're watching a movie on a screen, that that can be like when we're identified with thinking or identified with the story of what's happening. And you know when you watch a movie, it can be really, you can be getting all upset about something and somebody next to you might say, but it's just a movie, right? I mean, if somebody was listening to something that you were involved with next to you, like, you know, the joke, if your mind was projected on a loudspeaker <laughs> in the hall, uh, you know, luckily for us that doesn't happen. But, you know, if you heard somebody else's dramas going on, you might think, you know, what's the big deal? Just like when we watch a movie, we can have some space with, oh, it's just a movie. Well, one way to really um, investigate reality is to start to reflect on, well, when you're watching a movie, how does it happen? Well, there's that point where we turn the mind and we look behind us and we see that there is a projector. And not only is there a projector, but there's film in it. And that whoever took the film you know, was actually, if you look at how a movie goes, that actually there's one frame, one complete whole frame, you know, and then another one, you know, that's, that's like uh, beginning, middle, end. There's one picture, and then another picture, and another picture. And it's played at a certain speed, yeah? And it's so that, it, that that's played at a certain speed is the only reason that we identify it with it in the way that we do. And so when you, when you think about what it was like to be an infant, which is much more closer to the less conceptual, right? Um, say you're three months old and mommy walks out the room. That's permanent. We think that at that point in time, it'll feel like that's one frame. And it'll feel like very significant until the person comes back, that feels permanent. And so over time, as we get older and we get more into the conceptual world, that's when we start understanding a little bit more about impermanence. Uh, sometimes when we're on a retreat, when something hits really hard and it feels like permanent, it's because we're feeling it that deeply. And you can tell, again, like my last talk was about bringing the heart of a child, that softness of heart together with wisdom. You know, so much of a retreat at times is really going, you know, why? <laughs> why am I, you know, when I saw that suitcase the first time when I was on a long retreat and I just, I felt so sad and I, I kept trying to talk myself out of it and then realized, oh, I'm just feeling this really deeply, much more like a child. And that that's, again, when you feel things that deeply, it's okay. It's part of um, the intensity of a retreat. When we start to get that it's one frame by one frame by one frame played at a certain speed, we start to sense that there's actually the possibility of discovering this hidden wholeness. And there's a hidden wholeness in every moment, you know, a hidden wholeness in every moment, a hidden wholeness in every moment. And it's very important to know that we can learn many, many things, um, but that learning many things doesn't teach this, doesn't teach understanding.
And the only way that we can really um, start lighting up from the inside is, is this ability to kind of drop into our experience, free from the conceptual world, drop into our experience. And we can't control it, but we can make space for it. And I'd like to read um, part of a book called The Golden Key by George MacDonald, which describes in a more mythological or a poetic way of how this jumping in or diving into how things are happens. And it's um, a story of a girl named um, Tangle and a boy named Masi. Um, it's like a spiritual journey to you know this deep understanding of hidden wholeness. But the way it works is that they're going on a long journey and they're meeting certain beings that are helping them find their way to the, the deepest truth. And so they get split up. Um, they lose their way and they get split up. And uh, Tangle is going to see the old man of the earth. And he's the person that you're supposed to see before you get to the old man of the fire, who's a little boy, um, who is the wisest of all. So... I lost my glasses, so <laughs> I can't see very good with these. <clears throat> so Tangle, you know, this is a long journey, just to keep you in mind. So Tangle gets to the old man of the earth. She said, are you the old man of the earth? And the youth answered, and Tangle heard him, though not with her ears. I am. What can I do for you? Tell me the way to the country where it, whence the shadows fall. Ah, that I do not know. I only dream about it myself. I see its shadows sometimes in my mirror. The way to it I do not know. But I think the old man of the fire must know. He is much older than I am. He is the oldest man of all. Where does he live? I, w I will show you the way to his place. I never saw him myself. I wish I could see that country too, he said, but I must mind my work. He led her to the side of the cave and told her to lay her ear against the wall. What do you hear, he asked. I hear, answered Tangle, the sound of a great water running inside the rock. That river runs down to the dwelling of the oldest man of all, the old man of the fire. I wish I could go to see him, but I must mind my work. That river is the only way to him. Then the old man of the earth stooped over the floor of the cave, raised a huge stone from it, and left it leaning. It disclosed a great hole that went plumb down. That is the way, he said. But there are no stairs. You must throw yourself in. There is no other way. She turned and looked him full in the face, stood so for a whole minute as she thought it was a whole year. Then she threw herself headlong into the hole. It goes on. The next moment, you know, she's, she finally, she goes through some really difficult heat, <laughs> just burning up till the point where she can't even bear it, but she keeps going. And eventually she um, gets to the old man of the fire. So she's in a corner of the cave and she sees a little naked child sitting on the moss and he's playing with various balls of various colors and sizes. For seven years, she stood there watching the naked child 
and it seemed to her like seven hours. When all at once the shape the balls took, she knew not why, reminded her of her journey, and she said, Where's the old man of the fire? Here I am, answered the child. What can I do for you? There was such an awfulness of absolute repose on the face of the child that Tangle stood quiet before him. He had no smile, but the love in his large gray eyes was deep at the center. And with the repose there lay on his face a shimmer as of moonlight, which seemed as if any moment it might break into such a ravishing smile as would cause the beholder to weep themselves to death. But the smile never came, and the moonlight lay there unbroken, for the heart of the child was too deep for any smile to reach from it to his face. Are you the oldest man of all, Tangle said, filled with awe? Yes, I am. I am very, very old. I am able to help you. I can help everybody. And the child drew near and looked up in her face so that she burst into tears. There's no other way. There's no stairs. You have to jump in. And sometimes when we jump in, there's no feeling of in or out, and things can slow down. And sometimes there's this flip, this flip in the way the mind knows, and there's a quality of things moving, but there's also a stillness. There's no sense of time. And we have no memory of it until afterwards, and that's really important to remember. Um, and when we start to try to figure out where we are or analyze, we pull ourselves out. You know, so when we're in, stay in. You know, it's really, it's really um, part of what we're here for is to learn how to drop into the non-conceptual. And then there's so much learning that can take place and that can take place over time. Um, most of you know from knowing me over time that sounds, uh, learning how to work with a range of unpleasant and pleasant sounds has been a real, um, probably the most powerful teacher for me, learning about unpleasant, pleasant, neutral, and aversion and attachment. Um, so it's the appearance of sound can be a kind of litmus test for me to see where the mindfulness or no mindfulness is, uh, you know, occurring. So when I went to Burma this uh, last time, last year, there's usually um, a kind of experience with sound that'll be a great litmus test for me in terms of learning. So when I go to Burma up at this monastery, when, you know, I've never been there when Steve's there. I only go when he doesn't get a visa. So I stay in this cootie, this uh, little cottage that was built for him there. And it's right on the edge of um, looking out over the river. But it's the farth farthest out from all the rest of the cooties or cottages that are way back inside the valley. So that if the village is having a big party, which is put on broadcast on loudspeakers all night. I hear it, you know, really 
directly in the, the ear door. You know, it's just like it's rubbing against the ear door, and they tend to have, you know, several parties. I mean, we, we have no concept of parties like this. I mean, it's all night loudspeakers just twang, 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 twang. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. Uh, and so every year I get, you know, another learning experience <laughs> of what it's like <laughs> to kind of work with this sound. Um, and really, I don't, unless you experience it, you can't believe it. Um, this year I decided maybe um, I would fundraiser, ri fundraise for our own loudspeakers so that I could bring Western music and blast it back <laughs> just to kind of <laughs> have a competition. But I know, no, I won't really do that. Um, so anyway, this year, it was just amazing. I mean, it was so loud. You know, there's no possibility for sleep. You know, there's just no possibility at all. But, you know, by 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock, you know, you don't know how long the party's really going to last, right? And so I would really start, the way I used this experience this year was to really look at my identification with hope and hopeless. <laughs> And hopelessness. And so it's actually records. It's not like it's CDs. or You can hear the end of the song coming, right? You know, it's very loud on the loudspeaker. And I could hear it start to wind down. And then I would notice the appearance of hope. <laughs> and then, then there'd be that gap before they'd put the needle on or not, right? So there's this hope, 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 hope. <laughs> <laughs> And then there'd be the appearance of hopelessness. And as the night went on, there was just this increasing, you know, uh, like hope and hopelessness <laughs> and hope and hopelessness. And it was great because every time I would identify with either of those, I wouldn't be in the present moment. And I couldn't tolerate the sound. And it was just, this was such a, it was such a, a much deeper level of learning than I've had in the past with this, you know, the loudspeakers and these parties. And it was amazing to just to keep watching over and over again, you know, can I bear this? And it was much more, it's not, it wasn't the sound. It was really, could I bear noticing that identification with hope and hopelessness and starting to not buy into it and not buy into it, not buy into it. And it, was, it became so subtle, even though the sound was intense and sometimes extremely unpleasant. But it was really that whole knot around the aversion to it that was such a teaching. Uh, and by, the, you know, by about the third morning, I felt like I was really just, it was funny. You know, just, just, I was looking forward to that end of the song and that kind of... <coughs> And then that long pause, you know, it's like, maybe they're getting tired. Maybe they're going to go to bed, you know, just all that. And then, <laughs> you know, so we tend to think over and over that certain things are here to awaken us and certain things are obstacles. And we forget again and again that it's the resistance. That's the suffering. And resistance can be so slippery. I did a self-retreat last, last March here, and I would, I would be sitting, you know, for a while and just very quiet, just extremely quiet, and there'd be this little teeny thought that would come, just kind of like tangle 
as she was getting close to the old man of the fire with all that heat. And there'd be this little thought, very empty, very light, very slow. It would be like, I can't stand this anymore. <laughs> just, and I would ignore it. It would just be like, I wouldn't even pay attention to it. It would be kind of like, you know, the pumpkins are orange, or, you know, the light is on. It was just, it seemed so neutral. But then because I ignored it, it had power. And I was actually trying to, I believed it, I identified with it, and then I was trying to keep it away. And finally it was like, oh, it's just a thought. You know, and it was time for me at that point with my practice to get up and walk. Because, you know, I was, I could see the tendency to believe it rather than to um, just see it as a thought. Resistance is incredibly slippery. Now, at this point in the retreat, that's one of the joys of a long retreat, is just to start seeing how easily we can fool ourselves again and again into thinking that we're with something when we're actually not. <laughs> so every one of our moments is a, is a doorway to lighting up from inside, whether we're feeling lonely or whether we're with the breath or whether we're washing our hair or taking a step. You know, it's just a frame, a whole frame, timeless, if we just bring a lot of space around that experience and really try to connect with it, free from any past idea about it. And ultimately, I've learned over time that um, mindfulness of thought is really amazing. You know, because usually at first, it, I've talked about this before in talks, but I want to go into it a little more. It's like, of course, at first, thought can be something we really feel like we have to keep out because there is such a tendency to identify with it. But there will be times when you're quiet, quiet, you know, whether you've been practicing a long time or not. But you can relate to thought like the mind is like a child. And it is. It's like self-referencing thoughts is mostly what is happening. It's okay. They're just, you know, if you just, again, just look around, look at our heads, look at all what's going on. It's like the human being tends to be born into this un, you know, insecure world, and a lot of the thought is about protection. It is about self-referencing. And it's totally fine if you just listen to them in a different way. It's just like listening to the wind. You know, just, just listen to a car go by now. Or listen to somebody cough. It's like listening to your thoughts is just the same. It's just this stuff that's appearing. And there's no need to do anything about it. They're only a problem if we're believing them. But if you relate to it like a little kid that is just wanting your attention, your thoughts are just like a little kid that wants your attention. I'm not doing very good. I'm doing good. I'm doing better than the usual. You know, it's just all this stuff, you know. Maybe I should sit for an hour and a half. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should eat this. Maybe I should. You know, it's just this endless, you know. We're just trying to get our attention. And when we, when we think there's something wrong with it, it has great power over us. And when we can just hear it, it's just this little kid talking. 
you don't have to buy into the, the actual thoughts. It's m- just more that you listen rather than repress or indulge. So when we are relaxed and the mind is somewhat lit up from inside, the mind actually takes care of itself. We don't have to wall anything off. And in in some times in practice, we do have to be heroic. When we're a little tired, you know, when the energy is lower, we're more vulnerable, and there'll be a need to have that heroic energy. When we're in balance, gentleness, gentleness, gentleness. You know, there's, when we see clearly, there's no need to push things away. They just come and go by themselves. This great poet, Psycho, um, says this about loneliness. Hoped for, looked for, guests just never made it to my mountain hut. The now congenial loneliness I'd hate to live without. What what an amazing relationship to loneliness. Hoped for, looked for, guests just never made it to my mountain hut. The now congenial loneliness I'd hate to live without. That's the heart of a yogi. You know, the the seclusion. Um, Of course we get lonely. And to really see it as part of our journey and to, to see that we don't have to wall ourselves off from it is very, you know, over time it's so important, just like the sadness that Sayadaw said, you know, so sad. It's okay. Sometimes we get lonely. It's okay. Kuan Yin, the goddess of compassion. Um, Some people don't know that she's known for hearing all the cries in this world. But most people don't know that she's also known for hearing all the laughter. So she hears all the laughter as well as the cries. She's a good listener. And, you know, that's part of what we're learning. You know, I'm describing listening for sadness, listening for wind, listening for loneliness, just letting things be by this listening. So to get a sense that this um, embodiment of compassion is this ability to listen to the cries and screams and also the joy, the laughter. And I found that um, in learning to have compassion for myself, that that was the hardest thing in my practice, was learning to empathize with myself. Um, And it it was like, try to follow me with this, because it's very important. It's like, I wouldn't empathize with my suffering if I just felt the helplessness in the face of suffering. 
Because when I was young, it was like I was overwhelmed by that helplessness. So to try to empathize with that would bring up that feeling of overwhelm. So I couldn't do it. But when I felt myself um, having self-hatred thoughts because I couldn't be compassionate for myself, do you know what that's like? Anyone recognize that? You know, when you can't be kind or care for anything in yourself, but then you get down in yourself? It's like kicking a horse when it's down, basically. <laughs> it's like, okay, I can't empathize myself. I hate myself. You're no good at the practice. You know, so, but when I would find myself do that cruelty for my own self-hatred, then I would go, wow, I learned this. Now, I'm not, I'm not making this up. It's like we learn it. We learn being cruel to ourselves. And when I would get that I learned it, that's when I would listen to my own suffering. That's when I would hear my own cries or hear my own screams. It was like, wow, again, the cruelty was the doorway for me to my own empathy for myself. So sometimes it's just like it's, it's miraculous how this practice works. It's like hearing, hearing my own cries came from listening to the cruelty and being willing to face that rather than deny it. And usually it took the form of um, boredom. It's like I'd be outside here doing walking meditation, and when I would get bored, I'd think, I'm not working hard enough. And that that was like, uh, finally over time, I learned to have this little ambulance light go off. It's like, you know, the siren, look out, Michelle, you're about to kill yourself here, you know, because I just think it was my fault that I couldn't go deeper. And I'm an intensity junkie, and I think, you know, just, okay, so get up the whip, get out the whip, and just whip yourself for not being able to go deeper, for not being able to investigate at that point. You know, instead of, oh, boredom's okay. It's not my fault. I don't have to do anything with that. But that was the place where I learned the most about compassion, was boredom. Ah, you can get fully liberated noticing boredom. Notice how you relate to boredom, and it's, you know, just like the pumpkins lighting up from inside. You know, I would pick up a whip, whip myself, and then finally start to see, oh, I learned to do this to myself. Then I could care for myself. September 11th. Um, My best friend from childhood was on the first plane that went into the World Trade Center. And um, it was a very powerful experience for me. I I know that we all had ways in which that was a big deal, that, that time on the planet and what happened. And I think the planet is still kind of um, reverberating from that. And for me, it felt so personal. You know, it's just like, wow. I knew her my whole childhood, and it was like there were so many people in my life that have died from that time in my life, and it was like another blow. It's like my sister, then Judy, then my dad, and it was all from this little place nearby here where I grew up. Um, 
And I noticed that I just couldn't feel compassion for the people who blew it up. And I knew I wanted to, but I couldn't. Um, And I just uh, waited. And I know now from so many years of practice when when that can't happen, that my heart will take care of it, but that I have to have this mother of the paramis, great patience. And it's like the heart, you know, at that period of time when my sister died, Judy died, and then um, my dad died, it was like I just gave my, the earth my heart. I was like, you take care of it. <laughs> it's like, this is a lot. And I just kind of just waited. And it was amazing. Recently, um, I saw this film called The Corporation, which I mentioned in a couple talks ago. Um, but it was like I really got a sense of the anger that created that movement toward the planes going into the World Trade Center. And for the first time, I felt like I could accept it. It was like, oh, I had compassion. Um, But it it only happened after I could feel the grief of my friend dying. And I couldn't rush it. It was like, you know, sometimes you just wait. And it wasn't like I could feel the numbness in my heart around this experience. And I know enough at this point to just go, okay, you know, let it be, let it be, let it be. And then it takes care of itself. It literally will take care of itself. But sometimes we feel we're, the heart is strong enough, or the mind is strong enough, however you want to use these words. Uh, there's enough mindfulness, compassion to feel the pain. And then, wow, you know, just feeling that shift, it feels wonderful because I could feel myself walling off to that anger and just feeling like I didn't want to really empathize. And, you know, when we can empathize with another suffering, that's the healing. That's when we feel connected again rather than walled off. And it's that feeling of being walled off that's so painful. And this process, you know, it takes this, this just a patience that, that is truly unbelievable. And that, that's why I wanted to mention the mother of the universe being celebrated tonight, because in the Buddhist tradition, the mother, the mother of the paramis is patience. The father is equanimity, that unconditional acceptance. And they really, they're both so important. Over the years of working with Sayada Upandita, you know, coming in for interviews, one of the most important things he would say to me would be um, not any new instruction, you know, which I would sort of be hoping for, because he tends to dish out instructions very, very slowly, at least with me. And, you know, it might be two or three weeks would go by. You go in to see him every day, and, you know, and he would usually say to me, kind of with, almost with a kind of tone of condescension, but I would hear, he would say, digest it, digest it, day after day, digest this, digest this. And I'd be like, I want to digest this anymore. Can't we like do something else? <laughs> Can't we like move on to some other thing, you know? But over the years, I started to just appreciate, digest this. You know, it takes time to digest these teachings. It takes time. Anything that you've been working with this retreat, 
you know, we think six weeks or three months is a really long time, you know, but in the scheme of eons, you know, it's like that, that, that patience is not exactly our cultural, you know, strong point, you know. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, and to just keep being reminded, wherever you are, digest it. Just like in that, that book, The Golden Key, she stood there for seven years in front of this little child before she even remembered what she was doing there. And she stood there for one year before she was willing to jump. This is mythological time, but it's the time that we're working on in this kind of practice. It's like things just take time. And almost all worthy and noble things take time. In terms of um, patience and equanimity, I wanted to share a story just to kind of give a sense um, that it it isn't passivity. We hear that it's not passivity. Um, So in terms of um, precision around that, what that means is that equanimity um, is this heart or mind that's, that's connected to what the experience is. It's connected, but it's not taking the experience personally. So there's this deep ability to, it's called unconditional acceptance. So unconditional acceptance means that we're we're accepting something, whether it's painful, pleasant, or neutral. You know, and that's considered peace. And uh, and this in the paramis, that's the father of the paramis. It's like this deep, unconditional acceptance. But fake equanimity, which we're all quite good at, is when we pretend it's okay. You know, that pretense that, you know, we're, we're, you know, but when we look closely, the way you can tell indifference versus real equanimity is that the heart with indifference is closed off. It's separate. It's not connected. And there's a huge difference between indifference or passivity or denial where there's that pretend and when it's really real. And again, it takes time. It takes time for that grace of equanimity to appear. And I really want to honor honor you for being here and those who will keep going with it and all of us who practice, whether we're in daily life or here, that that equanimity and patience are just totally interrelated. It takes great patience for us to be willing to have the heart be indifferent or numb, like I described with my friend Judy, to just let it be, to let it be, to let it be, and then to just trust that with this light that comes from just doing the practice and patience, it will open. There will be the ability to feel that pain, and we're connected again on whatever level we're talking about. So anyway, I wanted to explain a bit about this on a, on a broader scale for those of you who will be shifting a bit out of here. Um, I have a dear friend who um, lives on the big island of Hawaii, and a few years ago, all around that time where my sister died, my dad, my friend Judy, 
um, this very dear student, a uh, friend of mine, um, was helicoptered from the Big Island over to Honolulu. He was really, really sick. Um, and I didn't know how sick he was. He, he has HIV and had it for a long time, and he got this really bad case of pneumonia. But, of course, none of us knew what he had yet. And I had company from the mainland, and we were all about to fly that day to the Big Island. This is, these are separate islands, so Oahu, where Honolulu is, is one place. And it's, it's where the majority of the population lives, so it's where the, great, the big hospitals are if you're really sick. So he gets helicoptered over to Honolulu about two hours before we're about to fly with this group of people over to where the land that we're going to buy, you know, it's coming up, the land deal, the great land deal is coming up this year. <laughs> so anyway, um, and I get a phone call. And these people, you know, if you fly to Hawaii, usually it's a big deal, right? You know, so these people are visiting. They want me to go over to show them this land. And uh, I get a phone call, and I'm like, I can't go. So they, they all left and were s disappointed. And uh, I went down, and I thought I was just going to visit him and leave for the big island that day. And I went in, and it was amazing. I mean, it was kind of like... Um, so unexpected for me. I just, I had to turn into a nurse and doctor because he was on this ward where he wasn't getting any attention. And I just, I, I came into it cold. I didn't know what was going on. And I came in and um, within minutes, I was rushing out to the nurses' stations going, you know, <laughs> I don't know what's going on here, but it looks pretty serious. And they were so busy. And I said, well, will somebody at least teach me how to read all the monitors? And um, so I, I learned what it, what the numbers meant, which was not maybe that great, but it saved his life uh, eventually. So whenever he would get up to go to the bathroom, his numbers would plummet to the point where it was like death. And so I'm like, I don't think he should get up to pee. And he's like, don't tell me the numbers. You know, he was like, just don't tell me the numbers. And I'm like, Okay, <laughs> I won't tell you the numbers. And the hours were going by, and it was just getting worse and worse. And I, I hit this point where I went into the hallway, and I started screaming. I screamed until somebody came in there, and I said, something's really wrong. He's going to die. And this guy in a wheelchair, I didn't even know who he was, but he turned out to be a doctor that just was kind of passing through. And he d I, I actually got down on my knees, and I begged him to help me. So equanimity doesn't always mean passivity. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really important for us to know. It's like I hit a point where I didn't, I didn't know in my head, but I trusted my body, and it was like, this is totally unacceptable. And that is just... You know, the, we can tend to think that being a doormat is being enlightened. No. It was like in that moment, the truth was that he wasn't getting the help he was helicoptered over for. And I just couldn't even get to the point where I said, you know, he needs to be in intensive care. You know, it was like I just came in kind of out of the blue. But he, he you know, this guy came in. He ordered him to go up there immediately. If I hadn't done that, he would have died. You know, that's... That's important for us to remember that there's this range of experience and that sometimes the mindful, compassionate thing to do 
is taking action. So it, it isn't just about passivity. And he did get his life saved. And he's really well right now. And it was sort of like um, about a week after, you know, this horrible procedure that they did once I got him up to uh, intensive care without any anesthesia. And he had this, the deepest experience in his life, the deepest spiritual experience of his life happened. At a, you know how we all fear, you know, like kind of being in that situation and being in intensive care and something like dramatic, like having this thing shoved down your lung and it just without it, they had to go through his sinuses. They shoved this tube down and it was really unbelievably painful. And he had this experience of just total love. This complete, utter, total love in that moment, in those moments. And you know, who can understand these things? But it was completely transforming. And a couple of days later, I had gone into this health food store. And you know these little packages they sell for travel? They're clear plastic, and they have all these little things in it. And I saw this thing by Burt's Bees. It was this this thing I went into this grocery store, grabbed this as a present for him, and he made use of it. I mean, it was just like you walked into his hospital room, and there'd be like this peppermint whatever that he was putting on, and this, and all the nurses were in there kind of enjoying it. And he turned the experience that can often be very difficult every day into self-care and self-love and compassion. And when you walked into that room, it was like everybody felt this atmosphere and love, of love and care. And so, so it's very important to remember that what we do here has great power. It's like when my dad was in the hospital and I had to go to Mass General every day from here. I commuted from here early morning. Um, I treated Mass General as the retreat center and a sanctuary, and his room was my meditation hall. And I was so busy at that time, I had this really wonderful experience where I seemed to get the same people behind the toll booths on my way in and out of Boston every day. And I was really going through a lot, and, and I wasn't really getting any support. And I'd like go through this toll booth, and I would on purpose, you know, go through where I didn't have the exact change. And these people started going, how's your dad? How are you? You know, and it was like on my way out, you know, how are you? And if I would cry, little people would be so nice to me. Just, it was a wonderful experience. You know, so this, this lighting up from inside, it's not a selfish experience. It lights up the whole world. When aversion and attachment aren't present, you've eradicated it from the world. When you're at peace, you bring great peace to the world. It's the only way to peace is that jump and really understanding the difference between war and peace and how noble what you're doing is, what, what we're doing here. Let's sit for a minute.
May we be peaceful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.